This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. We all know that uh, coming up, I guess we don't know what the timeline actually is, but next year, uh, meaning 2017, uh, the federal government is moving towards legalization of marijuana. What does that mean? Uh, it, it's, it's just not as easy as opening up a, an outlet and off you go. I mean, there's so many things to, con- to, uh, to think about, whether it's advertising, a restriction of who you're going to sell it to. And another big one, which has a lot of people concerned, is driving. Very much similar to the situation with drinking and driving, which we know is, is an ongoing issue here. And, and every year police do their bit with the ride checks and such, trying to ram the point home. But, it, it, you know... It seems that uh, sometimes they're getting the message, sometimes they're not getting the message. So what happens once legalized marijuana comes into the situation, and how do you test for that? What is What are the guidelines? Um, again, this is all uh, uncharted ground at this point. So Toronto police are rolling out a pilot project that will test the use of a road screen, uh, a roadside screening device or devices that will test for drug impaired drivers. The pilot project starts today, and I guess the whole idea here is to try to come up with something or some sort of standardized system uh, that works, and of course will hold up in the court of law and, and everything you have to do to, to to lay such a charge. Very similar to with drinking and driving. Joining us now is Clint Steeb. He is traffic services uh, media officer with the Toronto Police Traffic uh, Unit, and is with us now. Hello, Clint. How are you? today. Good, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate this. So tell us a bit about the pilot project and what it entails. So the pilot essentially begins today and will run through until the spring of 2017. What we will be doing is uh, we have uh, two devices that uh, have been supplied to us, uh, and those devices are capable of detecting whether or not a person has any drugs uh, on board their persons. And what I mean by that is uh, it is based on uh, consumption and not possession per se. Now, we need to keep in mind that uh, in order for a person to be uh, given this test, officers uh, will be screening candidates out because this is a test group that we're looking at. And what that means is anybody that, uh, let's say, and we'll, we'll use a hypothetical situation, a person that is impaired by an alcohol or drug, if uh, a person shows any signs of impairment whatsoever uh, or anything that would place that person in jeopardy, meaning that uh, they could be looking at criminal charges of some sort, that person will not be permitted to take part in this pilot project. The person we're looking for is one that is screened by the officer, does not have any evidence of impairment, and it's strictly more for the operation of the motor vehicle, uh, or sorry, uh, operation of the device, and not the operation of the motor vehicle that we're concerned about. Because anybody that's been screened, the operation of the motor vehicle has already been screened out. They've determined that that person's not impaired, that person's not suffering any sort of uh, effects from either a drug or alcohol component, and now we're just looking for somebody just that we can take a saliva test off of uh, to verify that the system can work in various types of uh, weather conditions. That could be extreme cold, uh, minus 20, minus 30 degrees uh, weather, uh, or even, uh, not that we'd see it, but 30-degree uh, days if somehow we see one between now and uh, the spring. So we are looking at a number of uh, tests. We are hopefully looking at in the neighborhood of uh, two to 300 tests uh, being uh, taken with these devices. And that, uh, that information will be given to uh, the government uh, for them to develop policies and standards for these devices. Uh, you need to keep in mind that any time a person submits themselves to one of these tests, there are no identifiable uh, characteristics or information that are collected from the individual. The only thing that is created is a control number, and the government has no way to link the two. And uh, the Toronto Police Service would de- also not have any way of linking the numbers. These are done on an anonymous basis. And if the person chooses not to be part of the 
test group, no problem. We will ask about the person. We will have groups that do not want to take part in it, and you know what? That's totally understandable. The flip side of that is we have group members uh, of the public that will take part in it, and we are looking to those members of the public to help us test these devices to make sure that uh, they are working properly and that they are working well. Uh, I understand, uh, Clint, that this um, the test that you're going the the the, the uh, test test that you're that you're administering uh, isn't legalized, can't be used in a court of law or anything like that at this point. But why would you not? Why are you strictly looking at testing people who you've already deemed to be uh, non-impaired? Is that strictly about the how the device itself operates in these conditions, as opposed to whether it's accurate or not? Actually, it has more to do with legislation. Uh, anytime an officer is given grounds to believe that a person uh, may be impaired by a drug or alcohol, they have a duty to act under the criminal code and uh, issue the sanctions accordingly, uh, whether it's the criminal code or the Highway Traffic Act. By screening out these individuals, we've already made the assessment that the condition that this person in is sorry is in uh, does not pose a threat to the general public. There is no uh, offense occurring uh, that we have to now step in and be involved with. This is strictly uh, a general operations uh, test. It's uh, at the same time when we look at the the risk to the individual of a charge being laid, this would not be used as part of approved police equipment. Right, right. So the grounds for anything in court would fall. Mm. Uh, the officers cannot build grounds from these devices because they would have already screened the individual out and determined that there are no grounds for impairment. So we're about protecting the public in the sense that we are not going to put the public in a position where now they're testing positive on the device and at the same time have an issue with uh, them now facing charges. That being said, we have had situations in the past, and we'll use alcohol as a perfect example. Uh, an individual may have had a lot to drink the day before. Now, although they are now what we would call a zero, where there's no alcohol on board, you in some cases can still smell it on the individual, whether mm -hmm. it's uh, uh, through an odor through the breath or uh, the skin, the clothing, any number of different ways that, that can come out. That doesn't mean that person's impaired. But it, in some cases, gives us the grounds to now test that person to say, hey, you know what, I smell some alcohol. You know what, I want to, but you don't seem to show signs of impairment, but, you know, there's something there. We need to now look at that. So those types of uh, hints, if you will, that a person offers us, whether it's dilated pupils, slurring speech, anything to that effect, whether it's alcohol or drug, <coughs> excuse me, would still play in the fact that if we did determine any of that, we'd have to exercise any uh, right, uh, rules that we have under current legislation and if, complete those prior to even considering this being used. So if there was a test done and it turns out that person now blew zero but still had the odor about their body, they don't meet any requirement under the uh, criminal code to be suspended or arrested. So now they've now passed that. They've shown no signs of impairment, so they've now passed that. So now we've gotten to a point where, look, we may smell something on you, but it actually doesn't show that there's any signs of impairment that would now lean you towards a situation where you'd be placed under arrest. That's where these devices can still be used. And in some cases, uh, some of the uh, stuff that you consume, and I'll give you a perfect example, uh, your hair maintains that evidence for a much longer time than, say, your saliva does mm -hmm. or your blood does. But you could, in theory, still show up with a trace of it in your system but not demonstrate any sign of impairment. Right. Because it takes time for a body to essentially get rid of the toxin. And the toxin for the general public is these different types of drugs. The drugs that this will test for will be uh, cannabis, cocaine, methamphetamines, and opioids. So we've got uh, a number of different types of or classifications of drugs that it will test for. In some, uh, the devices will test for even more. 
but uh, those are the four main categories that these devices are doing their control tests on, and those are the informations uh, that will be returned to the government for further development. Could you have these uh, have devices that could test for prescription medications? I guess with the opioids, you could still that would cover it, that as well. I was just going to say it depends on the uh, on the drug. Anything that falls under the CDSA as being a drug. Uh, will be uh, something that could affect you, and uh, essentially if you've got uh, large amounts of it, you can be charged for. So there's already a set type of drugs or classifications of drugs that already are captured, some of which would include some of the prescription drugs, the Oxycontins, uh, the, oh, I, not that I've used any of them, but mm-hmm. the, whatever the other types of drugs are. These types of drugs are already registered as uh, the extremely potent type, and as a result, you as the person taking this types of drugs need to keep in mind that you are responsible for anything you do behind the wheel of the car. And quite often we see a lot of drugs now that actually say that do not operate machinery, do mm-hmm. not drive, uh, may cause drowsiness. They've already identified a lot of side effects with these drugs. You consuming these drugs and then now being involved in a collision and exhibiting signs of impairment, just because it's prescription doesn't mean you're not chargeable. Does this test accurate? Uh, does this uh, test that you guys are doing the the program? Does it test the accuracy of the device, or is that already uh, has that already been covered? That is not questioned at this point. In other words, the ability to this detect is, uh, something on someone. This is only detecting whether or not there's any on board. Right. That's it. This is not telling us if there's, uh, and I would liken it to uh, an alcohol situation where 0 to 49, you're in the uh, okay range, uh, 50 to 90, uh, 50 to 80. But the testing itself is accurate, I guess. It's like when you, you know, when someone blows into a breathalyzer, you've got an accurate uh, uh, description of what's going on. Is that the case with these devices? Have they been proven that way that they are accurate? That's not how they're being used. Yeah. Okay. So they're yeah. only used yeah. to be saying yes or no, right. presence or not. That's mm-hmm. it. Uh, so, uh, what do you hope to have in a report at the end of this? Uh, what's the objective? What, what, do you, what do you hope to hand to officials after this? Uh, that's not my uh, part of the unit. We have uh, a section that just deals with uh, the drug and uh, alcohol impairment side. Uh, whatever information they're getting from these devices, if any, or that's all being downloaded to the government when they're returned, that I don't know. But in the end, it boils down to the operational abilities of the devices. Uh, that we are testing, which is more environmental than anything else. Uh, how big is this project? How many officers will be involved in this? We have five officers that administer the test, several hundred tests that we expect to do. Uh, and of that, there are, I believe, five or six different police services throughout Canada that are taking part of it. Uh, the Vancouver Police Department, Halifax, uh, in uh, Gatineau, uh, OPT, uh, as well as uh, Yellowknife, uh, RCMP, and I believe it's uh, North Battleford, uh, RCMP as well. So there are a number of different services that are part of it, and each will submit uh, their devices back to the government for uh, their assessments, the operational abilities, and any concerns that it may have. Uh, uh, we'll leave it at that because we're out of time. Uh, Traffic Services Media Officer Clint Steib is with us. Uh, of course, Toronto rolling out a pilot project to test the use of roadside screening devices that, tech, uh, that will uh, test for drug-impaired drivers. Clint, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. All right, take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. I guess when this government, uh, the Trudeau Liberal government, uh, was elected, everyone breathed a, thigh, a, a sigh of relief uh, simply because, well, it, it seemed to mean more access to the federal government. Uh, there was more communication, more consultation going on. 
not just here it is, take it or leave it sort of attitude that many thought it was the way that the Harper government handled it. Uh, but now, of course, uh, it appears that, uh, well, people are starting to get a little... Uh, a little disappointed. The federal government is meeting with the professional or with uh, provincial health ministers to discuss improving the health care system. The finance and health ministers, however, are squ- are squaring off against funding. And already today, Quebec's minister has threatened to walk out of the meetings. To talk more about all of this, Henry Jasek is with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Hello, Henry. How are you today? Just great, Scott. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. And I'm sure at the end, we'll end up talking about Trump in some way. But before we get there... <laughs> Before we get there, uh, lots were chatting before or after this government was elected that it it was a new day for uh, the provinces and the federal government, that there was going to be more consultation and collaboration and this sort of thing. Uh, What are your thoughts on, uh, well, even some uh, comparing uh, Trudeau's tactics to Harper's? Is that a little strong? Uh, Not, well... uh I mean, all, I mean, all strong leaders will, you know, try to arm twist as best they can and see what they can get away with. Uh, so, yeah, I, there may be some similarities there. But I think getting to the, you know, the core of the issue here is uh, health care funding. I think uh, many people, including many liberals and liberal premiers and, and important liberal elite, provincial elites across the country, thought that, well, uh, when they got rid of Harper, they were going to go back to the way they were treated by Paul Martin, and Paul Martin was ge- was you know fairly generous with the provinces in giving six percent a year. I think it was about a ten year put out a ten year uh, pro- uh, mandate on that, and which Harper uh, actually uh, adhered to. And uh, they thought that, uh, but Harper had said that he was going to cut that down after the ten years was over. But he's gone. They figured. Trudeau was going to pick up where Martin left off, and it doesn't look that way at all, and uh, they're unhappy. And this is really, I think, the first major sort of, uh, you know, uh, unhappiness being shown by very important uh, liberals and and politicians. Uh, uh, Justin Trudeau's had been on a honeymoon. He hasn't had... Uh, that was my next thought, Henry. Is he the honeymoon had, over? <laughs> he's had a long honeymoon because he hasn't had a, uh, a, a, a permanent, le- permanent leaders from the opposition, either the conservatives or the NDP. Uh, but now it turns out the provinces are now stepping into that role because they are being very... You know, they feel they're very disappointed by uh, given their expectations about how Trudeau is going to you know, manage uh, health care funding and they're under the gun. Uh, they, you know, their expenses are going up. They have to deal with an inflation, which is usually more than the regular inflation, because they have to buy a lot of equipment and other things from outside the country. Uh, the, you know, the Canadian dollars drop down, so that's uh, stressed them out more. And the federal government really has the lion's share of taxation in this pro- in this country, and uh, they're not getting what they thought they were going to get. Is this the answer? I mean, uh, how long can the government uh, just leave things, the federal government, leaves, leave things the same and hope that you're going to get a different result? Or is this about the provinces are going to have to figure out a way to do it even more efficiently than they are? Where is the, where's the waste here? Well, I, I'm not sure how much waste is in there. Cause yeah. I, I mean, I think there is some waste, uh, but I, I think the, the provinces have been, you know, have been certainly in Ontario, but certainly have been, uh, you know, cutting. I mean, in Ontario, we've lost a lot of registered nurses. Uh, we, you know, a lot of, per, you know, personnel uh, have, have, have departed from the system, but particularly in the, in the, in the area of nursing. 
uh, hospitals closed down and things like that. But uh, so I don't know how much more you can do. I mean, you you can view maybe as a waste as I would that maybe there are facilities which aren't being operated because the technicians or the doctors are not available. I can remember a couple of years ago, just to give you an example of of non-waste, I think I needed a test. And uh, in order to get in early, I I actually went in on a Sunday afternoon on the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's. Now, I don't know how many people would be willing to do that, but I was willing to do it. I was very impressed that, you know, the uh, general down on Barton Street, the hospital, was uh, was doing testing, was running all through the Sunday. And uh, that is a, a good, efficient use. I mean, that equipment is very expensive. And uh, but I'm not. But now we're hearing stories that a lot of this equipment is not being used in the evening. It's not being used on the weekends or holidays, and uh, because we don't have the personnel. And that I think is it. You know, you're really wasting facilities you have. And part of that is is the government's cutting back the amount of money they give to hospitals, so they just don't. You know, they just don't uh, do those tests. So uh, you know we have a we have a population that's getting older that's uh, that needs you know that that needs to have particularly I think these tests and other type of things done. Uh, we have the population is growing, uh, and uh, basically provinces are having a hard time keeping up with it. Now to add to this in Ontario, uh, this is partially made in Ontario because the provincial government has decided it's going to balance the books by the next election, and uh, because the health budget is the biggest budget, they've they have they've been squeezing all budgets, but they certainly have been squeezing the health budget budget. So it's it's finally people are are are, are feeling that, and they're not very happy. I mean, I, I haven't done it scientifically, but I'm hearing more and more from people how much longer they have to wait for diagnostic tests that they can't see their their family physician or anybody from their family physician's practice in the evenings or weekends. Uh, they're you know, or they can't get the, the treatments they need, and essentially people are going to become very unhappy about that. And you know, at both the provincial and the federal government, for the federal government, for the time being, they can get away with it because they're not going to face the voters until 2019. For the provincial government, they're really under the gun because they're going to they're going to see the. Uh, you know, the uh, a voting in, in a year and a half. How can, I, I've never understood, Henry, how we could uh, be losing numbers uh, of nurses when, as you mentioned, our population is getting older. I mean, you know, there may be waste, but is it in personnel? I mean, I don't think so. Well, personnel, uh, well, they, certainly we've, you know, the nur- number of nurses we have, registered nurses we have, have gone down. And we have, uh, you know, and certainly in the technical side, the technicians are sort of the people we sort of ignore. They're the ones that, you know, the, we're, uh, we don't realize, uh, you know, the numbers of technicians and the hours they work and that sort of thing. Because uh, when their hours are cut, people really don't see that. They don't realize, oh, suddenly the, you know, you're, they're not, you don't have any staff on in the evening. You don't have any staff on in the weekends. And uh, but they don't see that they they just sort of think well these people just work nine to five when in fact uh, the 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 facilities are so expensive they really need to be made you know used around the clock almost because otherwise they're not you know you're just wasting you know they're just sitting there unused when when you have a long lineup and. Uh, that's one of the problems. And, and we're also having population growth, too. That's another thing to keep in mind. Our population is growing, the number of people. So you, it's not that, you know, it's not only inflation, but it's the number of people that we have, irrespective of the fact that the population is getting older. 
and of course as people get older you you know you, you, you there's you know there there's pressure to for doctors to do uh, to do tests on people because they're coming in with one problem or another that they might not have done come in you know 20 or 30 years earlier so you know there is pressure to 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 do things and the hospital budgets have been have been you know really restricted over the last few years and i said that's really because from from what I can see, it's really because the government is trying to meet uh, its uh, its uh, you know its its promise of a balanced budget. And the other thing I haven't mentioned too here, I think, uh, and this affects really the federal government, the economy. When when the, when Trudeau came in and had high expectations, he was expecting that the U.S. economy was going to pick up, and that this was going to increase the demand for uh, goods and services from Canada. Our economy would pick up. When our economy picked up, we'd have more mo- more tax money rolling into the federal government. But isn't it picking up, Henry? I mean, they, they just jacked the interest rates in the United States. Yeah, they have. But if you look at, and, and, and Obama will come out, and he said, okay, look at the unemployment rate. And he's absolutely correct. It was very interesting that a lot of the people that he was pointing to in areas where he was pointing where the unemployment rate went down, those people actually didn't vote for the Democrats as they expected. Because the thing is, these people are getting it, going into jobs that have lower wages and salaries than they would have had 10 years ago. Hmm. So, in fact, their standard you may have a job now, but your standard of living has gone down, and you don't have that much money. And the same thing, I think, is also tr- happening in Canada. Uh, reports that I heard, unless I've got it wrong, uh, is that the people Christmas spending is down, which is a good indication of how much money people have in their pockets. Uh, it pe- people are not as well, uh, well off as uh, you know Trudeau had hoped, and and really what is really how people really measure wh- if they're well off is whether they have disposable money in their pockets, and they don't have that. Uh, you talked about Paul Martin and how he had uh, provided yeah. more money, uh, and then that changed uh, right. after he with Harper and now Trudeau. Uh, Paul Martin was said to be a fi- you know fiscally responsible liberal. How could he do it, and we can't now? Well, he he just made what he had done. Of course, before he became prime minister, he had he had gotten down. He gotten rid of the deficit. He inherited a very big deficit uh, previously. Uh, no, not as finance minister. Sorry, we're going all the way back to the Mulroney and Campbell government. They had a really big deficit, and he got rid of that uh, by reducing the amount of money he gave to the provinces. And by the time he came, pre- you know, premier, the provinces were really upset with him because he had, he had essentially cut cut the health spending in order to get to that point. And so as prime minister, he thought, well, he'd let up away, you know, uh, let up on them, and he'd start giving them uh, what he thought was adequate amount of money over the next 10 years, and they all agreed with it. So he was able to fit it in at that time, and he was running, he was running a pretty tight ship. Uh, you know, there were other areas where he'd cut back on. People in national defense, for example, would probably say he didn't spend the money he should. And, of course, we know national defense, when you buy equipment, that's expensive stuff. So if you don't buy it, you suddenly you free up a lot of money. But on the other hand, your your military has got a lot of old equipment. But so he, you know, so he, he those are the sort of things that he did, and he that he was able to do it. But when when 
you know, over the past 10 years, Harper, in various ways, has reduced the, the well tax the amount of tax money that would come in because he introduced a whole bunch of tax credits for one kind or another, uh, reduced well reduced the the uh, GST by two percent. All the economists said this was just a bad decision. So because it you know it stopped the federal government from getting a lot of money, threw more pressure on people through income taxes, which. Uh, which they view is, you know, economists view is not the best way necessarily to raise money. Consumption taxes are usually favored by economists, and uh, so the result is when Trudeau comes in, he doesn't have he's, he doesn't have the same type of tax regime that that Martin had, and he didn't and he didn't wasn't prepared to go back to 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 Martin's regime. I mean, if he wanted to go back to the way Martin had it, he would have, he would have jacked up the GS, you know, the HST by uh, 2%, which he was unwilling to do. So he's got less money and he's just hoping, hoping against hope the US economy was going to bail him out. And the US economy hasn't done that. Uh do the premiers have many options here? Do they have any options here? Uh are, are they wasting their time? Uh where does this all end? Well, I mean, they're, they they will go back to their population, and when people complain about health care, they're going to say that's it's just Trudeau's fault. And they will and they, and generally the provinces are the provincial premiers are closer to the population. And we have plenty of surveys that show when the prime minister gets into a fight with a provincial premier, the population of the province usually believes the premier and not the prime minister, simply because the premier is closer to the people. The closer the politician to the people, the more likely people will believe the the more local politician versus the person up in Ottawa. So it's it this is a this you know this is this is something that that really you know Justin Trudeau has to be has to really pay attention to because you know if he starts having the premiers beating up on him on this and saying it all these health care reductions that they have to go through are his fault over time people will tend to believe it and then of course once we have the uh, national new national leaders for the conservatives and the NDP you can be sure they're going to take the part of the premiers and this is just going to be you know he's going to be up uh, Trudeau's going to be up against a lot at that point how does Justin Trudeau handle this uh for the most part up until now it's you know a smile a big hug all's well and stuff uh, how does he mend these fences well he's i th- i think he has to compromise and give in i mean i think he has to you know, I don't think he can, you know, stick to three, you know, half of what Paul Martin gave. You know, he wants it, he wanted to go with 3%. There's some reports he's willing to go somewhat above 3%. Uh, Paul Martin gave 6%. So, you know, he, I don't think he can get away with giving half of what Paul Martin gave uh, 10 years ago. So uh, I, I think he's got, he has to give up, give a lot. Now, there's some, you know, reports that the premiers are willing to take, you know, the less than 6% that Paul Martin gave, but they're not. They they're not willing to take you know you know three to four percent. They they're just gonna they just don't want to accept that because they know that's going to put them under very severe severe pressure. What about being told how the money is spent? Uh, obviously, the federal government has made note that it wants uh, certain uh, results in mental health and and old age facilities and such and and, and care for for seniors. Uh, how does that wash with the provinces being told well, what to do with it? I mean, they can do they can do things, but I mean, they they can try to work on that and maybe have some kind of agreement. The, the basic problem, of course, that the provinces face is they're just trying to keep the doors open and they're just trying to keep the status quo. Now, if they've got to switch money from their regular services into these areas, which I think everybody should probably agree is the right thing to do. But you know, it, it, it's like paying Peter. To, you know, you're, you're paying yeah. Peter by robbing Paul. 
or paying Paul and robbing Peter, whichever way it goes. Mm-hmm. But you're, you've got to, you know, the money, you know, if you, if you only have so much money and you're going to do something new, you got to take it away from the areas where you're already spending your money. It's, uh, it's, it's really, you know, I don't know where else it comes from. It's, you know, it just doesn't. Money just doesn't grow. In your what head. will uh, What will Kevin O'Leary say about all of this? I, I have no idea. I actually don't pay any attention to him. Uh, maybe I should pay attention to him. Well, I, yeah. No, I don't, let's not forget, Henry. You didn't pay any attention to Trump, and look what happened. Look, you're absolutely correct. <laughs> I, I went from uh, never paying attention to Trump, and then after after the federal election, that's all I did was pay attention to Trump. <laughs> but maybe I should pay attention to Kevin O'Leary. But uh, <clears throat> I would still say I think. In Canada, I think I don't think Kevin O'Leary is going to get the conservative nomination, but I, I was wrong about Trump, so maybe I'll be wrong here. All right, speaking of Trump, uh, electoral vote today, uh, without getting into the weeds and, and how it's all done, there's certainly uh, a small, small opening, if there isn't even a, an opening or a crack for. Uh, uh, for people to change the course of history here. Is, is that even worth talking about? Is, is well, are, are we, we going to see any changes today? Uh, oh, I don't think well. I mean, it was, most of this was brought about by a, a Texas Republican elector who said he's not going to vote for Donald Trump and he was going to try to get other Republican electors uh, to, to not do that. Now, to, to date, I haven't heard of anybody else publicly who's agreed with him who has a Republican, you know, vote today. But that could be like the polls, Henry. Remember, nobody was going to admit That's they were going to exactly vote for it. Trump, and then look what happened. That, exactly it. I mean, there may be a whole bunch of people that say, I'm not going to say anything until I actually do it, because if I announce it ahead of time, you know, all <laughs> my right. friends are going to come down and beat me on the head. You know? so, <laughs> That's right. There'll be demonstrations out their front lawn. Yeah. Now, it only takes 37 people to throw it into the House of Representatives. And now remember, the House of Representatives will vote by state, and there are more Republican states' yeah. delegations in the House of Representatives than than Democrats. So we'll still get a Republican, and we'll still probably get Trump, but it would be very interesting if that happened. I mean, it, it it's possible the Republicans in the House of Representatives could go to another Republican, but I think that's far-fetched. But uh, I, don't, I don't expect to see that we're going to get 37 Republicans are going to vote for somebody else. Uh, people appear to be quite fearful. Uh, there's there's a, certainly lots and lots of rhetoric floating around. Uh, your thoughts on this now moving into a Trump presidency with everybody that he's appointed and such, or, or certainly trying to? What are your thoughts? Well, I think you know. I think there's there is a bunch. There's going to be a bunch of changes. Uh, there's going to be a bunch of surprises. I. Uh, uh, one the thing that's going to be interesting to me is that he that Trump is going to have to satisfy the Senate. Now be, he would point to and say, "Well, I've got 52 Republican senators." But senators in the U.S. are very independent people. They're elected for six years, plus they have a whole culture of being independent. And some of those Republican senators may not like some of the things that Trump is doing, and, they're, and they may be willing to go on the record. So, you know, he only needs three Republican senators uh, to vote with the Democrats to maybe have a nomination turned aside or something else. So, uh, you know, that, that, may, 
that that's possible. That will probably happen at some points. But there's also a lot he can do. You know, uh, you know, without even doing, uh, without going to the Senate in terms of immigration, and you know, he could deport a whole bunch of people if he was willing to do it. The problem is, a lot of the people he will want to deport are working in uh, for businesses, and the business owners are not likely to be very unhappy to see their to their their labor, which is very low, very poorly paid, and not hard to rep- and will be hard to replace at that salary level or wage level they're probably going to you know yell you know yell and scream if he if he starts to do massive deportations of illegal immigrants so that that will be interesting to see what he, I'm really waiting to see what he's going to do there uh, he's probably going to approve, um, you know, pipeline the pipeline to Keystone, mm-hmm. uh, the pipeline from Alberta down to Texas. Uh, uh, and ironically, the people who dislike it the most are people with, uh, along the pipeline, and all those states, and they all those people, or at least those states, voted Republican. So I find it ironic. Uh, it's not. It's not the. Uh, it's the states that uh, voted Republican that are probably going to bear the brunt of this uh, change in policy on on these. Uh, uh, on this oil being transported down to Texas, it'll be good for Alberta and good for Canada because it'll it'll bring more money to Canada and it'll be certainly good for the province of Alberta. But uh, it's going to be interesting. I, I would imagine he would do that pretty quickly. Henry Jasek has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Henry, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Okay, very good. It's going to be an exciting new year. I can. It tell will you be. It will be. Thank you, Henry. Have a great one. Great. Bye, bye, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 C. Let's talk about the United States uh, election. Does this mean it's over? Can we stop talking about this now? Is, is uh, As you know, uh, President-elect Donald Trump uh, in January officially becomes president. The electoral vote is today. Uh, and, of course, you need so many electoral votes in order to declare the presidency. There has been some chatter, and I guess it was one uh, Republican who uh, who told the Associated Press that he will not vote for Trump. He's really the only one that's come out and said this. That being said, there was clearly more people who wanted to vote for Trump than ever admitted it, if you want to believe what the polls say. So, I don't know, could the same thing happen here? Uh, and one guy is saying that, he, you know, he's not voting for Trump, but do the rest feel that way? And could we see a change in history after, or a change in the course of the election result after today? To talk more about all of this, Elliot Tepper is with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, and with us now. Hello, Elliot. How are you today? I'm fine, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. Is this the last chapter of this, Elliot? Will this be it? Can we close the book after this? We can close the book on the election. Uh, we should note that Hillary Clinton won the election very handily. She's got close to a three million vote edge over him. In the popular vote. Mm-hmm. But as we know, and uh, few people really understand why, there's an electoral college in the United States, and Donald Trump will be confirmed today as the next president. And even if not, if something happened, it would go to the House. <laughs> and the House, and the, for, the, for the presidency and the vice president for the Senate, the House is controlled by Republicans. But it won't go that far, Scott. Uh, Donald Trump will be confirmed today through the Electoral College process as the next president. Uh, Why are people even questioning this at this point? Is it because, I guess, you know, if you look back at the election, nobody predicted this anyway, so how could we possibly predict how this will go? This is a last guess. There is, in fact, a a surprising amount of effort to overturn the results uh, of the election in the Electoral College, keeping in mind, again, uh, two things. 
One is that Hillary Clinton quite handily won the popular vote. You know, you run for election, the person who gets most votes wins, except that isn't the case in the United States. And the second, uh, there's some hope given to those who aren't uh, fond of Donald Trump that the announcement uh, now confirmed that Russia not only intervened in the election, but they did so, uh, according to all the intelligence agencies, for the purpose of electing Donald Trump. Therefore, people are saying, well, we'd better not vote for him. But uh, the United States is a democracy and a great democracy, but it is an indirect democracy when it comes to voting. The Congress uh, originally that set up the Constitution uh, had a split vote inside their own uh, constituencies at that time. Some people wanted the indirect vote to be through, through the Congress itself so that Congress would people would vote for the Congress, Congress would vote for the president, and others wanted direct. And the compromise was the Electoral College. So the United States does not vote uh, directly for the president. We all understand that now. When you cast your vote in the United States, you're voting for an elector, and 270 of those uh, elect the next president out of the 538 total. Each state gets the number of votes in the Electoral College equal to their uh, House of Representatives uh, uh, votes or seats. So there is an attempt to see to it that small states are not frozen out, that there can't just be a, a popular demagogue get elected. Equal, uh, equal, this is equal representation, is it not? Well, it depends on your point of view. Well, I guess my point, I guess my point in this, Elliot, is that, you know, I've been around for 50 years now. It always seems, it always seems that those who lose an election or those that are unhappy with the result, perhaps, then start talking about electoral reform, popular vote, whether it's in Canada, the United States or or anywhere. I mean, don't we always analyze this or if you're, uh, you know, if it's the opposite side who who you want to have won. I mean, isn't this typical that that's... Well, I've been watching this a long, long time, and I've never seen the kind of pressure put on the Electoral College as we have this year with the election of Donald Trump. But But then again, does that reflect reflect a flaw in the system, or does that just reflect the hate for the candidate? Well, we have, you know, the United States has set up a system, and everybody has to live by the rules, and those are the rules. Now, had it been reversed, had he won the popular vote but not the Electoral College, I suspect would be also focusing on the Electoral College today. Uh, There is a great urge to say, you know, the person who gets the most votes wins, but that isn't the system in the U.S., Keep in mind also that... It's not the system here. It's not the same system here either, is it? No. No. Well, here we have, again, people think they're voting for a leader, but actually they're voting for a party, and the the party that gets the most votes then... But it just seems funny that everybody everybody thinks that this is such such an anomaly, and really it isn't, is it? It's just that people are very upset with a candidate. Certainly there is that, Scott, but it is still an anomaly. That is, the United States, in popular perception feels that it has a, uh, a direct democracy when, in fact, it has an indirect democracy. In Canada and places that have a parliamentary system, it isn't quite the same indirect uh, manner of voting because people know that they're voting for a political party uh, that then will choose the leader, and everybody now knows who that leader will be because more and more uh, presidential campaigns look an awful lot like parliamentary campaigns, parliamentary campaigns focus more and more on the leader. But yes, there's a, a big concern about 
how do you get representation? Canada, as you know, is thinking of toying with the idea of changing its electoral system from per- first past the post. Mm-hmm. The nature of representation is always under discussion. It's particularly under discussion now in Canada because of the electoral pledge of the government that now has come to power. And in the United States, the Electoral College, which uh, in, I think, 1968, there was a lot of effort to get rid of it because George Wallace took 46 electoral votes, and he was an out-and-out racist, segregationist. So to, you know, there was a big move to abolish it. Let's go to a popular vote. The southern states, it, now and then, have blocked any efforts to change the Electoral College. They benefit from it. They don't want to change it. And uh, that's what we have. And Donald Trump will become president. Uh, Making reference to Canada, as you mentioned, uh, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau said before the the election that this was the last election that would be uh, won or lost using the current system. Now people seem, or he seems to be less interested in that. Where will we move on this moving forward? Of course, that's unpredictable. It's up to the Canadian public and it's up to the the current government and how they choose to lead this process. But once you win, once you win, Elliot, do you still have that same appetite that, you know, to change the system that got you elected? When you're in third place, and there had been talk until that point that the party might disappear, you can promise to change the electoral system. Once you have won by the existing, existing electoral system, perhaps the appetite has diminished. But I think the fact that Canada always has had a two and a half party system there's always three parties, four parties uh, running. There's always a move to go to some form of proportional representation. But the government of the day, which wins under the current system, uh, ultimately opposes it. Hmm. Uh, would we still be talking about all of this regarding the U.S. election campaign if Hillary had gotten in, do you think? I think we would, because Donald Trump would be uh, leading a, a very substantial uh, campaign, a movement, really, saying that the system is rigged, that the Electoral College is the one that counts, not the popular vote, had she won that way. Did we so expect that? Had it been di- reversed, I think we would have seen a, an even bigger move uh, in the United States of people marching and in the streets. In Ohio, they're actually almost barricading the uh, you know, electors go to the capital city and then to the state house, and they're almost barricaded. Did we expect this reaction from the Democrats? The Democrats are in shock. The fact that uh, Hillary lost, even though, you know, she won by a huge margin, by a substantial margin anyway, not huge, of about three million votes, clearly uh, in, a, in a race that was so polarizing as this last one, even more than a normal election. Remember, the last time was Bush versus Gore, where Gore won the popular vote and lost by a uh, <laughs> technicality in the Supreme Court of the United States. There wasn't a movement like this. This is because of the polarizing nature of the last campaign, the polarizing nature of the candidate who ultimately won. And uh, it's not unexpected that so much being at stake and the cabinet appointments so far clearly demonstrating a radical shift in American politics to the right, that prior to the taking office, the last gasp being the Electoral College would indeed uh, motivate a lot of people to try to do something to stop it. 
Uh, do you think, Elliot, that, uh, and we're speaking with Elliot Tepper, uh, emeritus professor of uh, political science, Carleton University, do you think Trump could have won without being so polarizing? I mean, it seemed that it, it, a lot of people didn't think that, uh, that, that this amount would, would vote for Trump. Uh, lots of Democrats stayed home. Could he have won this without being so polarizing, well, just, being, big, just being well, an alternative candidate? Uh, had he been a normal candidate, he still would have had as he does as he does now the change card that is time for a change is very very potent mm-hmm. after eight years of one party in power we did see that in canada after one party being ten years in power that time for a change became a very very important uh, motivating factor in the election had he been you know a more uh, regular candidate he might have done even better at the polls we don't know that his negatives remember were ext- the highest of any candidate yeah. ever running for president. So uh, we'll never know what would have happened. Could he have mobilized this particular coalition without his kind of message? Well, we don't know that either. So it's certainly possible that he won the only way he could win, mobilizing. uh, Remember, this is happening across the uh, whole Western democratic system. It's happening in Europe, mobilizing those who are just disaffected altogether from the political system, disaffected by what happens through globalization, disaffected because they feel the system has been ossified and is rigged against them. So Donald Trump is really the most successful so far of the right-wing alternatives against, I guess you'd call it right-wing populism, against the establishment, against elites of all kinds, and possibly he would have won um, without having done the kind of mobilizing he did, but he possibly is the harbinger of things to come. And uh, the, we have to realize that the United States has shifted far to the right, and there's a movement all across Europe for anti-establishment candidates, right-wing candidates who were considered fringe candidates because of, um, of immigration and slow economic growth, now coming to the fore and challenging for power. Uh, So how long before, and especially up here, considering there's an election coming soon, how far before other candidates cash in on this, but do it in a much more palatable way? In other words, looking for the alternative, but not necessarily trying to tick everyone else off in the process. When you have a model that succeeds, it, of course, will stimulate uh, imitation. We'll have to see if that imitation model here in Canada can catch hold, as it has clearly in Europe, and certainly successfully now, as of today, in the United States. How will Trump handle the whole Russian hacking thing? I mean, obviously, he's played friendly uh, uh, with the appointment of uh, uh, the gentleman who his name escapes me now uh, from Exxon. Um, you know, so obviously he he's portrayed sort of a, a lot more friendlier relationship with Russia. How does this whole Russian hacking thing fit into this? And, and how does he come out of this uh, well, staying balanced? the intelligence uh, esti- uh, estimates are correct. He has benefited. <laughs> he has won as a result in part. And I think people are now already forgetting that Hillary Clinton actually had a one-two punch at a time when um, it looked like the Trump campaign was on the mat permanently for the reasons that uh, we all know. Along came not only the Russian hacking, but the FBI yep. intervention. So, which is, you know, they came in at a key time. It's not just they came in, but key uh, times in the momentum 
of the race were affected by a double intervention. So yeah, good point. Uh, we'll have to see what he does. He wants to reset relations with the Russians. He will do so. Uh, is that for the better or for the worse? We'll have to wait and see. But at the end of the day, he still has to deal with the fact that Russians hacked into the U.S. servers, doesn't he? I mean, how can you still stay, even if it did rule in his favor? I mean, that, that certainly upsets the ca- the apple cart here. Yes, he can. Uh, is that the new can, norm? What's the new norm? He can do what, what President Obama did uh, more quietly and say, okay, knock it off. Don't do it anymore. And there will be some kind of a counter strike, perhaps before Trump takes a lot office so that the Russians are uh, have their knuckles wrapped through a, some kind of cyber attack. So I think that he can say, well, that's been looked after. Let's move on. Uh, as he continues down this path, will we continue to hear from him on things like Twitter, what have you? It seems that that's settled down a little bit in the last few days. We'll have to see. Uh, remember that <laughs> there's a good Canadian invention. In fact, I'm using it right now, the BlackBerry uh, that uh, President Obama really wanted to keep, and they had to basically pry it out of his hands uh, once he was elected. Once he's elected, there will be Secret Service uh, and intelligence people telling him this is what really works as a president and what you really can't do as a president for security reasons. Hmm. But we'll have to see. That's his nature. It's worked for him. It's gotten him elected president in part. That's one of his main ways of reaching the people by bypassing the media. This is his part of his populist appeal. We'll have to see if he continues along the path he has. And in particular, uh, I'm concerned about or everybody's watching Steve Bannon mm. in the White House because his job, you know, remember he came out of the alt-right and the conspiracy theory um, ecosystem, and Donald Trump has used that as, in part for, as part of his Twitter activity. Will he continue Steve Bannon to play that role, and my guess is that's exactly why he's there. He's there to keep the base happy, so I think we're going to continue to see values. This is no uh, standard Republican uh, method of holding power and getting power. Uh, the values debate will be put front and center, and the economic debate then just, you know, diminishes in importance. Steve Bannon, and Twitter is part of that, will be in charge of that kind of messaging. Elliot Tepper has been with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Elliot, fascinating times, fascinating discussion. Thank you very much for the time. Much appreciated. It's a time of change. We all have to watch it. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.